No. It made me value my education a million times more because being there, I think that's the misconception Mm. a lot of times with these experiences is that like, oh, like I'm going to go in and help these people and make their lives better. But in reality, like they helped me tenfold and made my life so much better. And I was like, if I want to make a meaningful change, like I need to acquire more knowledge. And I definitely think that there are many, many faults with our education system and with the institution of universities, 100,000%. Mm-hmm. But I think the root of it, which is like feeding your brain and learning in a structured environment, I think there's a lot of value in that. And so it just further solidified my desire to learn and to get my degree. So I guess your dad was happy then when you oh, yes. were like... <laughs> oh, yes. Yeah. Now he gloats. He will like go out and he's like, yeah, my daughter went to blah, blah, blah. I'm like, you didn't even want me to go. <laughs> Glad you're happy now. Right. Hello, hello. Welcome to Young, Gifted, and Abroad, perspectives on studying abroad from past and present students of color. My name is Danielle, and I'm so excited to be able to talk to you today because today I have my friend Nina as the guest. Now, Nina makes me think a lot of Naila from episode 39 in the sense that we were both at Michigan State University over a similar period of time, were in similar circles and may have even crossed paths, but never truly got acquainted. And for Nina more specifically, not just MSU, but even high school, um, we were in the same high school over an overlapping period of time, and I just never got to meet her properly. So this was my chance to do so. And it was also my chance to ask Nina about the time she did a gap year in El Salvador. So currently, Nina is a singer and a grad student in Chicago. She's pursuing her master's in journalism from Northwestern's Medill School of Journalism, so shout out to her. Um, But before that, and even before MSU, uh, when Nina was graduating high school, she was feeling really uncertain about uh, what she wanted to do in life and what she wanted her next steps to be. And so she actually uh, deferred her admission to MSU and at the age of 17 moved to El Salvador for a year to do a year year of service there. Um, So she really went in depth with me about all the different factors and reasonings that went into her making that decision. Some of those reasons, uh, especially for choosing El Salvador more specifically, were Nina's sociological curiosity about gangs and about Latin American cultures, and also her faith. Nina is part of the Baha'i faith, and doing a year of service is actually quite common uh, for young people. So she explained to me about that as well, and I just feel like I learned so much from her. I learned a lot from everyone I talk to for Young, Gifted, and Abroad, but um, Nina especially is very passionate about acquiring knowledge and about exploring the things she wants to do in life. So. I feel really glad that I got the opportunity to talk to her. Um, And also, like last episode, episode uh, 48 with Camille, uh, I hadn't had anyone uh, talk about Hungary yet until I talked to Camille. And now this time, for this episode, Nina is the first person that I've had to talk about El Salvador specifically. So I feel like I'm (laughs) two for two in 
terms of talking about new places that haven't been discussed on the show yet. Uh, so I'm really excited about that. And I'm just really excited for y'all to hear what Nina has to say. So without further ado, sit back, relax, and enjoy my interview with my friend, Nina Ruhani. Uh, how is Chicago treating you so far? Chicago's been really great. I've just I'm really lucky because I don't start school for another like two a little less than two weeks, like 10, 10 12 days. So I okay. kind of had the opportunity to kind of just settle in, get to know the neighborhood, and just like really kind of experience the city before school comes into play. So I'm just really glad about that. Nice. Yeah. How long has it been? Uh, when did you When did you move? First of the month. So I've already been here for almost two weeks now. Okay, so you kind of had like a whole month to just get situated. Yes, yeah. I kind of just planned it that way. Like I made sure to quit my job before I got here and like just have some time to focus on like music stuff um, and like kind of get all my ducks in a row for my releases before starting school. Okay, well, that's good. That's good. Um I know I, f- I feel like we've crossed paths in the in the past but never really got acquainted so I'm yeah. glad to be able to I guess meet you properly right now. Me too. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and and thank you for uh, agreeing to be a guest on this podcast I really do appreciate it yeah of course so before I ask you about you know the the gap year that you had and all that stuff why don't we start with you um, introducing yourself a bit if you don't mind Yeah, so um, my name is Nina. I am a singer-songwriter as well as a master's student pursuing my master's in journalism. Um, Writing has always been a passion of mine, so whether the mode of writing is through music or through articles through a journalistic kind of channel, I've always just loved to write and explore and learn. Um, So that's what I'm doing right now. I graduated from Michigan State University um, and I grew up in Detroit, went to high school in the suburbs, and now I am currently based in Chicago. Um, so lots of traveling all over, which is also a huge part of my identity is definitely to travel and get to know different places, which is part of the reason I'm talking to you. Yeah. Cool. Cool. And congratulations to you. You're at Northwestern, right? Yes, I am. Yeah. Yes, I'm at Medill. Yeah. Isn't that like one of the top journalism schools in the country? It is. It is, yeah. Oh, so I'm, wow. I'm definitely like still a little bit in disbelief that I'm going to Medill, but I'm I'm definitely feeling super grateful for that. Yeah, yeah, good for you. I'm I'm Thanks. sure you totally earned and deserve being there, and thank I hope so that much. you get um, everything that you need to get out of it. Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, I definitely feel the exact same way. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and um, I'm glad that you mentioned being a singer as well, because I was going to ask, like, how you kind of balance the two, you know, pursuing journalism and then also being a singer. But I guess, yeah. like you said, you're, you, I guess you're a writer at heart, so that kind of uh, fuels what you do in both of those respects, right? Yeah, definitely, definitely. I mean, I think singing is just the act of singing is something that was always very natural to me. So it's it's hugely a part of my identity. Like, I look at it as the same way that I would look at as an organ or like a member of my body, you know, it's just Mm. something that's very innate and that I've always done and that I always will do. Um, And so it's just always come very naturally to me. So integrating it into my life has always been very natural. 
but the pursuit of music in terms of as a career is a little bit different from just singing, you know what I'm saying, for fun or enjoyment. Um, so I'm just trying to kind of treat this passion that I have um, as an, a potential means of income and a potential career. Uh, so that definitely kind of shifts the way that you look at it. Yeah. Um, and then also balancing that with school is definitely taxing, but in the same sense, I feel like it provides an amount of structure that I really seek. Like having school provides a lot of structure in my life, which actually makes me, in my opinion, to be more productive when it comes to my music. So hmm. it's been, I mean, we'll see how it goes the next year, but I'm definitely looking forward to the challenge. Yeah, for sure. And you spent some time in LA too, didn't you? I did. Yeah, I was actually in Orange County, which is about 45 minutes I mean, listen, with the traffic over there, it could take you 45 minutes, it could take you three hours, but I mean, it's not that far from LA, but everybody knows how LA traffic is, so. Yeah. Did that play a part in you deciding to be more active with singing, or was that something you had already done before you moved to, started doing you before know, you moved to California? Yeah. I, when I was, I've always, you know, thought about the pursuit of music as a career, mm -hmm. but it was never something that was, that was talked about as being realistic in my social environment. Um, I grew up in a immigrant home, in a Middle Eastern immigrant home. My parents are both from Iran. And so, you know, the pursuit of creative passions is not really something that parents um, encourage. <laughs> so I definitely didn't look at it as being feasible. But when I got to California, I just had a friend who kind of was putting pressure on me to release an original song I didn't even like really want to and he was like you have to like you know you write such good songs and so I did it and then after I did it things it was just kind of like a domino effect things just started happening for me and it kind of felt like the universe was pushing me in that direction and so I was like who am I to fight the forces of the universe so mm -hmm. I just kind of went with <laughs> it and here we are now two years later and I'm still kind of on that journey yeah. And I feel like, um, you know, Chicago is a good place to be because it does have such a, a history and a culture uh, having to do with the arts, you know, so that'll yes, be a different totally. scene that you can get used to and find, yes. you know, explore super your artistry. In. It's a super vibrant community. There's a lot of artists, yeah, both in visual arts and performing arts. And so I'm, I'm, I've just been here for a few weeks and I'm already like kind of seeing the tip of the iceberg of how many creatives there are out here and it's a very supportive creative community as well which I really appreciate yeah like I said I just hope I know it's like still pretty new for you right now but I just hope it turns out being everything you need it to be um, as do I <laughs> yeah this is exciting yeah um, it is it yeah. totally is okay uh well Today, I wanted to ask you about your the gap year that you had uh, yes. between high school and starting at MSU, right? Yes. Yep. Okay. So, what made you want to decide to take a gap year in the first place? So, yeah, it was a number of reasons. Um, thinking back to my 17-year-old brain, which is how old I was when I decided to move to El Salvador, I sort of was kind of in a place of like not knowing exactly what it was I wanted to do yet. Mm -hmm. um, in high school, I had kind of a rocky journey with high school. I had moved from Detroit to the suburbs and I didn't go to Detroit public schools. I went to a charter school, but there it still was not a very high level of education. I, when I arrived at the school in the suburbs, I felt incredibly behind. 
Hmm. Um, you know, my level of knowledge was not the same level as a lot of the kids who were there already because of the education that I had received in middle school. Um, and so I really struggled in high school. And then my sophomore year of high school, I joined student leadership, which really helped me kind of get it together a bit. And then um, after that, I went to, you know, I finished up high school. I got into Michigan State University. And um, after I had got accepted, I had to make the decision of whether or not I wanted to take a year off. And so just kind of being in a place of not really knowing what I wanted to do, I decided, you know what, like, I think it, it is not a bad idea for me to take off a year. Um, one, to kind of like take this opportunity to explore and to learn and to educate myself, to also provide a service to humankind, really. I wanted to do something where I was providing some type of service and also to just kind of figure out my path. And so my family, not everybody in my family, but a lot of people in my family, my mother included, are Baha'is, are members of the Baha'i faith, which is our religion that we follow. And um, in the Baha'i faith, it's very common for youth who are graduating high school or graduating college to take a gap year and go anywhere. It could be local. You could just go from one city to another, or you could go to another country or wherever, and spend a year in service to others, in service to your community. And it's not like missionary work. Like, it's not like you go and, like, go knock on people's doors and teach them a religion. It's just that you go and you are contributing to the needs of different communities in whatever mm -hmm. capacity is, is needed in that location. And so um, I told my parents, and at first my dad was not on board at all. Um, he was like, no, you need to go to college. Like he thought that me not me taking a gap year meant that I wasn't going to go to school. Mm. And so I really had to like grapple with that and really try to convince him to let me go. Finally, he said, I'll let you go under the condition that you go somewhere and you learn a language. And I had always been very much interested in Latin American culture, uh, music, movies, art. And so I was like, okay, like I'll go somewhere Spanish speaking. And I also had a really big interest in learning about the ways that gang organizations influence the communities that they exist in. Hmm. And I think part of that came from growing up on the east side of Detroit and kind of seeing the impact that gang life had on the community. I was just curious of how that functioned in different countries. And so I applied to serve in a number of Central and South American countries. And I had a special interest in El Salvador just because I knew of the uh, history of the gang MS-13 and the role that it played um, in El Salvador. And so I got, you know, notices from the different countries I applied to. I got accepted in four different countries. And of those four, El Salvador was one of them. Um, and they basically had a school that was Baha'i inspired in a rural community. And they needed people to come and help teach English to like preschool and grade school kids. And also to um, kind of help run community activities within um, like residential communities. And so I felt that it was a good fit and I responded to their acceptance. And I said that I was really willing to and really excited to go there and spend a year there. Nice. Wow. Okay. Um, was it through like the Baha'i community that you found these um, these organizations that you applied to, or was it just kind of like looking at? Yeah. So each basically, country? the way that the Baha'i community is structured, we don't have clergy. Um, we basically have 
like bodies of individuals that are voted in by the Baha'i community mm-hmm. to kind of oversee the relations of those communities. So there's a local level, a national level, and an international level. And so each national, they're called spiritual assemblies. So my, I contacted my national spiritual assembly, which contacted the national spiritual assemblies of these other countries and was like, we have this youth and she's interested in serving for a year and like, do you have any need um, for anything? And so I, you know, that's how it went. And then they were, some of the countries responded back. They said, yes, like this person, you know, fits what we're looking for. Like, please let her know that we'd love to have her in our community. So then when I got there, which I'm sure you'll ask questions about, but yeah, when I got there, um, I definitely felt supported having that community around me. That's really nice. Cause I, cause I didn't know like how it happened that you ended up going there. So it's just like, in my head, it's like, okay, you're just graduating from high school. You're going to a place you've never been before. How do you find that community? Yeah. How do you feel, like, find people who make you feel safe, that type of thing? But you kind of yeah. already had that set when you In went sense, there. Yeah, I did. I mean, I definitely had my a ton of challenges that just came along with, like, not knowing language, not knowing culture. Mm-hmm. Um, but, like, I definitely arrived having a sense of community already pre-established, which I think is similar to the experience that kids have who go on study abroad. So like if you go on a study abroad somewhere, like there's host families and mm-hmm. there's like faculty at the at the place that you're actually studying at, there's your, your fellow students. So like you have that degree of structure around you. And so in a similar sense, I had a bit of structure around me too, which definitely made me feel supported. But like I was living in like a regular, I wasn't living with the host family. Like I was living in a regular community you know, just among just ordinary people. And I walked to the public bus every day and like I took the bus to the school. Like it wasn't as if there was people like parenting me or like watching over my every move. I was pretty independent while I was there. Okay. So you were like in living on your own, like in an apartment or something? I lived in a house with two other girls who were doing this similar work to what I was doing. But then uh, the two of them left they had their time was coming to an end while my well, as my time was like beginning and so the first like six to eight months they were there but then the last like four to six months i was on my own okay wow and were you were you already 18 by the time you went there or were you still 17 no, i was 17 okay wow okay <laughs> so did you have to get like special permissions since you were still a minor or i did have to get consent from my parents like they had to consent to my going there mm-hmm. um but i but that was about it i mean they, we just needed them to okay me going and that was it and then when i got there like i was basically treated as an adult i mean i turned 18 a couple months after i got there i left okay. in, in september and then i turned 18 at the end of november yeah and then you were basically living on your own for like the last you know you said four to six months of the yeah the time that you were there wow yep. So was that like a thing for you where it was just like you felt really grown? Like, oh, I'm a real adult because I live on my own. (laughs) You know what? It's funny because like the stuff for me that was like, oh, damn, like I'm really out here like living on my own. Yeah. Was like things that people don't really deal with, like people of higher levels of income in the U.S. And even some people of like mid to low levels of income don't deal with. Like I had a like a washing machine to wash my clothes but then I didn't have a drying like a dryer so like I would have to like 
put up lines in the backyard and like use clothespins or like things to like clip up my clothes to dry them. But then like if you see that there was, it was going to start to rain, like then you had to go and get your clothes and like put them inside, like just things like that mm-hmm. that like, you don't really think about in the States. But like I had to do all that for myself and like nobody taught me to do those things because I didn't even have to do those things here, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and like, for example, if I wanted to, to take a hot shower, there was no hot water in the shower. So you had to boil water and then add cold water to it and then like basically take a warm sponge bath because like or just take a cold shower because there was like no hot water so i had to like learn all these little like hacks you know that like i did not have to even know anything about while i was in the u.s because you know people at least people around me were not doing that wow yeah so you really had to like learn as you go not just like being on your own for the first time but learning how life goes in that particular place yes yeah yeah wow definitely it was a huge culture shock for me but like i'm just i've never lived around people who look like me i've never like i'm like i said before like my parents are from iran i'm persian but like i've never lived in a persian community i grew up in detroit which is predominantly black then i moved to the suburbs which are predominantly white and then Mm -hmm. you know what i'm saying like i was always used to having to adapt to my cultural surroundings yeah and so that wasn't very difficult for me the most great challenge that i had was just the language barriers um today i'm completely fluent in spanish i can hold my own in any space nice um but when i got there i was nowhere near that yet so (laughs) that was definitely the biggest challenge for me but like in terms of like just being in a different culture that to me was like so cool like i was like i like my roommates would be like oh like i miss like oreos and like mcdonald's and actually they have mcdonald's there but like Mm -hmm. just different like american things and i was like really like i don't (laughs) (laughs) wow okay and i'm curious because you mentioned you said you had already heard of this particular gang that was active or i guess maybe still is active in el salvador i mean how did you come across that knowledge I feel like it's not something that everybody is privy to, so... YouTube. Oh, literally okay. YouTube. I would, like, when I was in high school, I would literally, like, I was just so... I mean, I was a sociology major in, in undergrad. I was always super interested in learning about these organizations because, in a sense, like, I would look at these gangs and these organizations as, like, they're, like, the government of, like, the hood, you know? Mm. Like, this, we always talk about gangs as if, like, oh, my God, gangs are so awful and so corrupt, but it's, like, our governments are pretty corrupt and awful and have done awful things as well. Mm -hmm. Like these are basically the governments of these communities in a sense. So like that was just always really interesting to me and like how social norms are different in different sub communities, you know, like you could go from one street to the next and the social norms are just completely different. What is deemed acceptable and unacceptable is completely different. Mm -hmm. And so like, just that idea of like different cultures and sub communities led to me becoming interested in gangs, which led to me learning about MS-13, uh, which is a Salvadoran gang, but it, it wasn't created in El Salvador. It was actually created in the United States, mm-hmm. uh, which is something that many people don't know. Um, but yeah, that's kind of how I, I heard about them. And so I would read, I would like go on Google scholar and like read like people who wrote their dissertations about this gang and like, just the history and the and how it came it like came to exist due to a civil war in El Salvador that was actually backed by the United States and like just it just had a really interesting backstory and history and it 
it really impacted people's lives a lot in El Salvador. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, that's kind of where my interest stemmed from. Yeah. It's interesting because you said you felt like you were behind once you got to high school. But it sounds like you like took a lot of initiative on your own to like learn things, you know? Yeah. Because I wasn't perusing Google Scholar when I was 17. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what? My sister, I have an older sister. She's 10 years older than me. Mm-hmm. And so like, and she was studying sociology in undergrad. So she was in my like my parents as well. Like I don't want to not give them credit. So I definitely give them credit. But my sister also was like a huge force who kind of fed the desire in me for knowledge. Like, mm-hmm. she definitely watered it and co- helped to cultivate it a little more. So, yeah, I'm, I definitely, like, am grateful for my family because they, they instilled a lot of these values in me growing up. Yeah. So did you, I mean, I'm not trying to get stuck on the gang thing. I'm just trying to understand it because I don't know anything about it. Like, yeah. did you see that presence or the impact of that presence while you were in El Salvador? So I lived on MS-13 territory, not by choice. That's just where they placed me. Mm -hmm. Um, Because basically the whole country is divided between two gangs. Not that they all affiliate with these gangs, but these gangs, because it's basically all about like territory and like controlling territory. So Mm -hmm. like there's MS-13 and there's Calle 18, which is 18th Street. And these are two major gangs, which basically have taken over territory throughout the whole country and so more than likely unless you're living in like a super affluent area like more than likely you're living in in a place that's tagged by one of these gangs and so my area was tagged by ms-13 um in the area that i actually lived i didn't see very much because the way that the community was divided the areas where you had the most severe gang presence was guarded by like government like actual soldiers that Mm. kind of blocked off those communities and like blocked off access to those communities and so i was at one point towards the end of my year i was serving in one in one of those communities they called them marginales and i was teaching like a sunday virtues class for little kids Mm. um we had like 50 kids that would sometimes show up to this to this class and we would just talk to them about like kindness and respect and like um, cleanliness and just different virtues, you know, um, and their parents would bring them and we'd play games with them and sing songs with them. And so this community in particular, like they had, you know, gang activity that happened in that community. But a lot of it is pretty hush hush because like a lot of it involves extortion. And so mm. like, um, for example, like there's like an open market. And so the gang members will basically charge people in these open markets fees to quote unquote protect them but really it's like either pay us this fee or we're going to basically terrorize you Uh, um that's like a big source of income for them and so it was stuff like that but in the community that i was actually teaching in um that the school was in there i would see more because some of our students their parents were in gangs Hmm. um or their parents or their families were affected by gangs and so you definitely saw a greater presence in those communities versus the community that I was living in. Mm. Wow. But I never felt unsafe at any point. Like, I was never in a situation. Because a lot of times these things that involve gangs involve the people who are in the gang or affiliated with the gang. And, like, mm-hmm. I was neither of those things. And I was pretty street smart, you know? Like, I wasn't, like, flashing around, like, a new iPhone and, like, wearing, like, brand new Nike shoes and just walking around. You know what I'm saying? Like I wasn't, and I also, I'm pretty like ethnically ambiguous in my appearance. So I didn't stick out like a sore thumb, you know, while I was there. (laughs) Yeah. And so I was, I didn't really deal with anything, any situations where I felt unsafe. 
the craziest thing that I saw was one time I was driving home from the airport and we were passing through this area that's like kind of infamous for crimes and shady things happening. And there was a dead body like over there as we were driving and like on our way to the airport, we saw it. And then on our way back from the airport, like when we're driving back, we saw like cop cars and an ambulance and like all these things. It was a woman who I I don't know what happened to her, but she was dead in the street. Um, And and so I don't know if that was gang related, but just because of the reputation of that area, I kind of made an assumption that it might have been. Um, But I mean, to think about it, like in 12 months, that's the only thing that I saw is actually not that bad because we have shootings here in this country every day. Right, right, right. <laughs> right. <laughs> Sad but true. Yeah. Exactly. Oh my goodness. Okay, so it's just like, you know, you had to be aware of your surroundings and all that and know what was what, yeah. but you You've didn't feel free smarts. Right. So you were okay. <laughs> yeah. I was I was good. Yeah. And um for people like me who are not familiar with uh, El Salvador. Can you explain where in El Salvador you were? I was in a city called Santa Tecla, which is also called Nuevo San Salvador. Um, and San Salvador is the capital of, San- of El Salvador. So I was inland. I wasn't living somewhere coastal. Okay. Um, but we weren't that far from the beach. We were like a 20, 25 minute drive from the beach. So like El Salvador is a beautiful country. I mean, in terms of natural beauty, like they have everything. They have beaches, they have mountains, they have volcanoes, like they have literally just they have forests they have it's just so rich in culture and in natural beauty and so we were really lucky like on the weekends sometimes we would go to the beach and they have these really gorgeous beaches with black black sand because Mm. it's somehow tied to the to the volcanoes and like that's why the sand is black but it was just like unlike anything and they have a huge surfing scene um so people would like come there to go surfing from all over the world and like they had a i mean it was a it's a pretty modern country of course like there's a lots of rural areas as well but like when i told people i was going to el salvador they were like oh are you gonna like be in the forest i'm like no like (laughs) you know they have like big skyscrapers and office buildings and restaurants and movie theaters and like they have huge malls, like malls that are even more extravagant than some of the malls that we have, you know, in the U.S. So mm-hmm. it's a really, it was a really cool place. Yeah, it sounds like it. Can you describe, you said you were like mainly working with kids at the school. Can mm-hmm. you describe what a typical day was like for you? Yeah, so um, I would wake up in the mornings. I actually had a neighbor who um, I was really close with the family. Sometimes I would go I'd walk down the street to their house and have breakfast with them. Hmm. Um, and then I would walk to, I'd walk like maybe three or four blocks to the bus stop, which was like in front of a park. Um, we get on the bus and the city buses were school buses. And each bus driver would kind of like deck out their bus with like spray paint. Like just each bus was very unique to whoever the bus driver was. Oh, okay. Um, so you just, they had numbers. So you knew which one to get on. You get on the bus, you pay them the fee, which was, I don't even remember how much it was, but it was definitely not more than a dollar. And they had the U.S. dollar. That was, That's their currency. Um, mm. And so then, you know, I'd hop on the bus. It's a very hot bus ride. Lots of people shopped in there and um, it's no AC, of course. The windows are all <laughs> rolled down. We would take the bus and that would get off at my stop. I'd walk through this, like, it's not like there's not sidewalks it was just kind of like a kind of 
dirt-ish road and then there's like homes and you know uh, little restaurants and things on both sides and I'd walk through there and I'd go to school at school I would just bounce between classrooms um it was they had kindergarten or pre-k through I want to say like the sixth grade they had like a dance class where they would like learn dances which was part of like their gym time mm-hmm. uh sometimes we'd go and like learn the dances with them uh and then there was like a woman down the street who sold food so we'd go there for lunch sometimes and she would cook for us and, you know just spend time with the kids get really hot and sweaty i had headaches a lot just because i was not used to like being under the sun that much and i was not hydrating myself as much as i should have mm. um and so like i would just you know have to focus on drinking lots of water and it's funny because they would sell agua en bolsa, which is like water in a bag. Pay them a quarter, like you'd spend a quarter, and they would like give you drinks like in bags, like that, mm-hmm. in like plastic bags. Like that was a pretty <laughs> normal way of getting drinks from different places, which was something that was definitely interesting that like kind of stood out to me. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, so then I, you know, finish up at school around, I'd say like three, hop back on the bus, walk back home, and then I would have more free time. There was different activities happening in the Baha'i community, so there would be, like, you know, devotionals or study circles or just, like, dinners or movie nights. So, like, you know, here and there there'd be activities or we'd go to the mall or to the movies. Um, When the kids had vacation from school, we'd travel. We'd go to different parts of El Salvador, like the... Um, indigenous ruins sometimes we'd go to see the temples and stuff and then mm. um, we would also go to um, Guatemala one time we went to Guatemala wow okay and and so you were working with kids right how mm-hmm. was that was that something you had to get used to like had you previously taught kids or worked with kids before so basically um in the Baha'i faith there's a sequence of books referred to as the Ruhi books and Ruhi means like of the soul and you study these books in like a study circle mm-hmm. and there's a few books that focus on working with children and um, junior youth who are kids between the ages of 11 and 15 mm-hmm. and so in order to be able to go to these schools and, and you know teach and be with children you have to study these books beforehand and so I had studied the books before I had arrived to El Salvador and I continued studying them while I was in El Salvador Um, So those definitely gave me insight because it talked about like children and their behaviors and like, you know, how to discipline and how to interact. So that was definitely helpful. But other than that, in high school, I had like done some tutoring stuff here and there. But like, I definitely didn't have extensive experience with kids. I will tell you that much Mm. because I was I'm the baby of my family. So like there were there are not many people younger than me in my family so i wasn't really exposed that much to children Mm. but i loved kids so it was cool the only thing that was hard was like disciplining them in spanish when you don't speak spanish so (laughs) that was like my biggest challenge i think is like trying to get them to listen to me yeah (laughs) but eventually you know six to eight months in i was picking up on a lot so it became a lot easier yeah um what's about to say Oh, I was going to ask you, like, how the kids were. Like, I mean, I know to a certain extent kids are, like, children are children, like, no matter where you go. But, like, did you notice anything that was special or different about the kids you worked with versus, like, you know, kids that you uh, interacted with back in the States? They're definitely, I mean, like you said, kids are kids. And a lot of times, like, when they're that young, up until, like, five or six years old, like, I don't think that their their realities have 
penetrated their character as much as when they get older because they're more aware when they're older. Mm. Um, so the younger ones were definitely just, you know, they're kids. We got really close to them. We got super attached to these kids. Like, oh my gosh, insanely attached to these kids. Mm-hmm. Um, but then the older ones, like I would say like fourth grade and up, they were much more aware of like their realities and their living situations and their home lives. And a lot of these kids had a really um, difficult home lives and not to say that they had bad parents or anything like that but it's just like the realities of the community that they were living in Mm -hmm. again um with the impact of poverty with the impact of gangs um really just impacted their mannerisms and their perspectives like rightfully so and understandably so Mm -hmm. um so the older ones it was definitely more evident but with the younger ones you know the four or five year olds six year olds like they're just just fun loving kids they all have really unique personalities and like characteristics and mannerisms and they were just really sweet kids i just i really to this day like i remember in that you know i was there like what seven years ago and to this day i can still tell you their names and their stories and just different things about them that's so precious. Yeah. Oh my goodness. And that's good too. Like you said, um, that you already liked kids, you know, when you got there. It wasn't yeah. like you had to kind of steal yourself up like, oh man, I got to deal with these kids deal today. With <laughs> <laughs> no, I liked kids. I definitely liked kids going in and like, they're so loving and so affectionate and they would just like hug on you and like be all over you. And like, it's, it was really sweet. Oh, Oh, that's wonderful. That is yeah. so wonderful. Um, and you said you, you're fluent in Spanish now. Like you, when you first got there, you couldn't really communicate. And then as time went on, you were able to get the hang of it. Yeah. Was that just through immersion or were you like actively like studying Spanish as well? It was definitely like, it was immersion, but also I took a conscious effort on my end to not just revert to English whenever I could and use that as a crutch. Hmm. But I grew up with two languages, so I feel like a p- the part of my brain that works with languages is already being stimulated hmm. ever since I was, you know, could speak and understand. Yeah. Um, and so I think it came a little bit easier to me to pick up on the language because I grew up with multiple languages. Yeah. That's impressive because I feel like, I mean, everyone is different. So it takes, you know, however long it takes for people to become proficient in languages. So for you to make the progress you made in just a year and you weren't like taking, you weren't like in hardcore, like intensive classes or anything. No classes. Yeah. (laughs) My life was my class. Right. Yeah. School of life. (laughs) It's the most um, educational yet the most ruthless school yeah (laughs) Yeah. well it's amazing that your spanish was able to get so good in in that amount of time super lucky i feel really blessed that's awesome um were you i mean how often were you communicating with your family while you were in el salvador pretty often i mean i would talk to them i would say like some type of communication at least like once every two days two or three days and that was about it. Uh, and they came and visited me at one point. Oh, okay. Yeah. How did that really, go? It was amazing. They had such a good time. They, like, went home and bought Rosetta Stone and were trying to learn Spanish. <laughs> <laughs> Which was pretty cute. That is really uh, cute. They did not succeed. However, <laughs> they tried. It was really sweet. Oh, well, that's great. That is so yeah. great. Um, 
so, so during this time, did you ever, because you deferred your admission to MSU, yeah. right? Yep. While you were in El Salvador, did you still plan on going back or was there oh, ever yes, a time where 100%. you thought, well, I could travel more or do something else? No. Okay. It made me value my education a million times more because being there, like I learned so much from that community and I benefited so much from being there. I think I benefited way more from being there than the kids benefited from having me there. And I think that's the misconception mm. a lot of times with these experiences is that like, oh, like I'm going to go in and help these people and make their lives better. But in reality, like they helped me tenfold and made my life so much better from being there. You know, like people may have thought like, oh, they're lucky to have you. Like, and I felt super lucky to have them. because <laughs> It just changed the whole trajectory of my life. I mean, being there and I, I valued my education so much more. And I was like, if I want to make a meaningful change, like I need to acquire more knowledge. Mm -hmm. And I definitely think that there are many, many faults with our education system and with the institution of universities, hundred thousand percent. I think there's so many problems with it, mm -hmm. but I think the root of it, which is like going and getting an education and like feeding your brain and learning in a structured environment. I think there's a lot of value in that. And so it just further, kind of solidified my desire to learn and to get my degree. Okay. So I guess your dad w was happy then when you oh, yes. were like, <laughs> Oh yes. Yeah. And now he gloats. He will like go out and he's like, yeah, my daughter went to blah, blah, blah. I'm like, you didn't even want me to go. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you're happy now. Right. Yeah. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> yeah. He's funny. <laughs> oh man. You said, uh, you said that like you kind of always have had to get used to your cultural environment because there weren't <laughs> other people like you around mm -hmm. you when you were coming mm -hmm. up. I guess in general, how well or not so well did you feel like you were able to fit in while you were in El Salvador? Yeah, I mean, I think we whenever we look back on things, we remember them in a much more positive light, I think, than... Mm -hmm than how we felt when we were there. So I think if you had asked me while I was there, I would have said that I didn't feel like I fit in very much. Hmm. Um, but now looking back on it, like I definitely feel like I adapted to the best of my ability mm -hmm. um, to my surroundings. I People were just very kind and, and welcoming and inclusive. But at the end of the day, like I'm not from there, you know? And like that's not ever going to change. I can adapt as much as I want, but that's yeah. not my native land that's not where I grew up you know I'm not going to be able to connect with the environment the same way that people that are from there are going to connect with the environment mm -hmm. um like even this is like a silly example but like before I moved there that my point of contact there basically said to me he was like are you afraid of cockroaches and I said I mean no <laughs> I had never seen a cockroach but I was like well, whatever it's like a bug like what mm -hmm. am I I'm scared of a bug like I was afraid of spiders at the time. So I was like, as long as it's not a spider, like I'm not scared of it. And so I read up on it and I was like, oh dang, like El Salvador is the cockroach capital of like the world. Oh my and goodness. And so I was like, okay, interesting. And so I get there and the first I see a cockroach is when I'm like arranging my room and it crawls out from under my bed. It's, it's the length of like, Bigger than the length of your middle finger. Like, this is a large... Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, my God. Like, I don't know if I can pass on here, but, like, I was like, oh, bad word. Like, what am I about to do? And so I 
grabbed a bottle of Bygone, which is like Raid, and I sprayed it. And right when I sprayed it, it flew at me. Oh no. It flew. It had wings. And I started crying and screaming. <laughs> and after that, I was like, oh no, like this is not about to happen again. And so I would spray my room religiously with Bygone, like religiously. And so one day I was like feeling super nauseous and I called my sister. I'm like, dude, I can't hold any food down. I'm so sick. And she's like, why? I'm like, I don't know. Like, I just feel really, really sick. Like, I think I ate something. I think I got food poisoning. Mm -hmm. And she was like, didn't you say you've been spraying bygone? And I was like, yeah. And she's like, let me call you back. So she hangs up the phone, calls me back like four minutes later. And it's like, I'm pretty sure you're poisoning yourself with insecticide. Oh (laughs) my goodness. Okay, so I had to literally move out of my house for, like, a week and, like, air my house out. And I lived with, I, like, moved in for that week with this Baha'i family who the wife is a doctor. Yeah. Um, And so she, like, basically took care of me for that whole week. And, like, I was just twirling everything I ate. And it was, like, the same thing that I was, like, hoping would happen to the roaches was actually happening to me. (laughs) So that was, in some ways, I never was able to adapt. And that was definitely one of them. Yeah. To this day, I'm, like, petrified of cockroaches. I don't care about spiders anymore, though, so that's good. <laughs> oh, my gosh. It was petrifying. It was actually petrifying. Like, oh I, I wish that upon no one. <laughs> oh, you made it. You sur- you survived the I survived the, the roaches. roaches. I did. I'm here stronger than I was before. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Okay. So, like, overall, this experience was pretty positive, pretty transformative for you, it sounds 100%. like. Yeah. Yeah. Um, do you have something that was, like, like your favorite thing or an experience that was, like, really memorable during that time? Yeah. Um, well, there's, yeah. So, one of my most memorable experiences was that during this time that I was there, it was the year that everybody said it was going to be the end of the world. I don't know if you remember. Just oh, yes. I do remember that. Yeah. And they were like, oh, it's because the Mayans said so or whatever. Mm -hmm. And so, like, all around the U.S., they were advertising it. And so, while I was down there, my friends were like, hey, like, there's a ceremony happening at the, like, ruins. um, The temples and stuff. The indigenous temples. And I was like, oh, what's it for? And they're like, oh, it's for the end of this, like, era. This cycle. And I was like, Mm -hmm. oh, my God. So, this is what people are saying is the end of the world. It was, like, the end of, like, a cycle from one cycle to another like the corn cycle or i don't even know what it was but it was basically like the end of it was not the end of the world like they never said it was the end of the world people were just like freaking out for no reason mm-hmm. um and so we went to the mayan i, th- I think it was mayan i don't want to say mayan because it may it might have been aztec or something else but it was the ruins the temples mm-hmm. um and they had like this huge party celebration from like the night to the morning like all night long And it was so much fun. And they were, like, playing music and doing different traditional customs. And, like, a bunch of people came. You set out blankets. You lay down. Like, you dance. You participate. It was just a really cool experience. And we stayed up all night. Um, And so that was a lot of fun. And then also we went to Cuatepeque, which is a lake that's, like, on top of a volcano that's inactive. Mm -hmm. And it's, like turquoise water like actually turquoise like the most beautiful water you could ever see and we would go kayaking and like we just spent a weekend up there and like it was just the views were spectacular like it was just absolutely stunning so 
those were two of my most memorable experiences, I would have to say. Yeah, those both sound like fantastic. <laughs> yeah, they were. <laughs> and I'm I'm actually pretty glad you mentioned that whole thing because I totally forgot. Like 2012 was a really strange year, especially with that whole like end year. of the world thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, very very strange. Oh my gosh! Um, I believe anything. I'm sorry. I said people will believe anything. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And I feel like maybe it was the same in, like, 2000. I remember Y2K. I vaguely remember Y2K, but I was, like, in second grade, so I don't, you know, remember much. Yes, it was a similar thing. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Well, we're still here, so I guess it wasn't the end of the world. Yeah. Like you said, it probably was, like, a misinterpretation or, like, a lack of knowledge in terms of, like, ending, end of a cycle versus, like, end of the world. Yep, exactly. (laughs) Correct. (laughs) Okay. Do you uh, do you keep in touch with anyone from you know any of the people you met while you yeah, were in El Salvador? I do. I do. Um, definitely. Like we don't talk on like a daily basis, but like at least like once a month, I'll talk to a few people that I met back there. I've seen a few of them here. Uh, I actually met up with a couple people that I met while I was there in California last year. I want to say no. Was it last year? It was in the last, it was in the last year we mm. saw each other in California. That was so great. But yeah, like we're, I mean, we have each other on social media and like, we'll talk here and there and like, we'll talk on WhatsApp sometimes. But I went back once, um, like a year after mm-hmm. and that was it. Okay. I haven't been back since, but I definitely want to go back hundred percent. Okay. Great. Yeah. That was what, like literally my next question was, have you been back or do you want yeah, to go back? Yeah. I went yeah. back once. Yeah. I'm sure it must be like a place that's special in your heart. So special. So yeah. special. I forgot to ask, was that your first time um, going out of the country? No, I had exited the country before that. All right, so it wasn't like completely brand new. Right, like I had been on an airplane before. Like yeah. I had had to use my passport before, but I had never been to Latin America, so that was my first time there. Gotcha. Okay. Mm-hmm. Nice. Nice. Is there anywhere else in the world that you like to go? Would like to go? Anything that's like at the top of your list or anything? I mean, the mo- the one that's probably going to happen the most, the soonest I'm excited about is the Dominican Republic. Mm. Um, I've always wanted to go to the Dominican Republic, just not because they have like nice beaches or anything, but just because I've learned a lot about the history of the country. I studied. Mm-hmm. Uh, Chicano and Latino studies as my minor in undergrad and so I took a Latin American history class and I learned a lot about the DR and I just really 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 want to go um, and so I'm probably going to go in the next year with a friend of mine who's actually from there mm. um, so I'm really excited for that nice well I hope you enjoy that that sounds like yes. a really great time thank you yeah yeah so this was through, like, your Baha'i community, so I don't know how, like, finances worked. Like, how were you able to yeah. participate in this, like, financially? So, they were giving me a monthly stipend, um, and my and I was also using money that I saved up through my, like, job in high school and stuff. But okay. they gave me, like, a very modest stipend and um, were covering my living, like, my rent. And my parents, did, my parents didn't really help me much, to be honest. It was mostly just, like, what I was getting for my stipend plus like what I had saved up. Okay. And was that enough? You felt like that was enough for you to get by? I felt, yeah, I was good. Everything is pretty cheap. So I was, you know, you can get lunch for $1.50. So I was fine. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) What 
If any, do you have any like advice for people who want to do a gap year or go to El Salvador or just travel yeah. advice in general? Do you have anything of that that you would like I mean, to share? I think it's like I think you need we need to just set our fears aside. I think a lot of people will make up excuses because like deep down they're kind of scared to do it because mm-hmm. it is scary. It's a hundred percent scary, but it's like what is life without doing things that are scary? You know? Yeah. Like it's gonna be. A financial commitment you're gonna have to make sacrifices like it's not gonna be comfortable at every moment but like it literally changed my entire life like it changed my entire life for the better and it was the best decision I've ever made and yeah. so I think that if it's if you have the privilege and ability to leave the country like meaning that if you have status in this country and you can pick up you know get a passport and leave then like do it yeah that's okay. the best piece of advice I can give yeah very wise, um, very helpful. I appreciate that. Yeah. And then, um, so the last question I, I have that I always ask everyone is where can people reach or keep up with you online yeah. if you'd like them to do so? Yeah, for sure. Um, I think the best way to keep up with me online is just through Instagram. Um, and my Instagram username is Nina Rowe. Yeah, so I think Instagram is, is the best way to keep in touch with me for all things life-related, music-related, just everything. Okay. All right. Well, perfect. Thank you so much for... Yeah, thank uh, you. Yeah, really telling me that about your experiences. This is yeah. really fun. It was nice <laughs> to reminisce a bit. Yeah, yeah. And I hope you enjoyed this time as well. Are I you still did. commuting? I am still in the car. Oh, okay. All right. <laughs> well, I hope you make it home at some point, yes. not yes. too late. Yeah, I'm here. I just, I didn't want to get out of the car since I was talking to you, but okay. I'm gonna, once we wrap, I'm going to go inside. Okay. Um, I will keep in touch with you because this Absolutely. will be out um, next month. And obviously awesome. we're still connected too. So yeah, of course. And I'll yeah. definitely send you pictures. Thank you so much, Nina. I'll let you enjoy the rest of your evening. Thank I'm going to stop recording and then I'm okay. going to X out. And then okay. that's, you can go on with the rest of your life. So. Great, thank you. <laughs> okay. Thank you. All right, y'all. There it is. Thanks to Nina for being such a wonderful guest. And I hope you like how this all turned out. For the rest of you listening, don't forget to follow this podcast at Young Gifted and Abroad on Instagram and Facebook. And don't forget to check out guest profiles and resource lists on younggiftedandabroad.com. Also, if you enjoy what you've been hearing so far, then please continue listening to Young Gifted and Abroad on pretty much all major platforms. And while you're at it, leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. I would really appreciate that. And as always, if you have questions or comments to share, or if you yourself would like to be a guest on the show, then feel free to email me at younggiftedandabroad at gmail.com. So for the next episode in two weeks, that episode is going to be the 50th episode, episode number five zero. And that's so exciting. Um, <laughs> it really is exciting. And um, obviously I hit these milestones a lot slower. Uh, now that I do bi-weekly episodes compared to how quickly I would reach them if I were doing weekly episodes like I was last year. But you know, I'm still thankful, still excited about it. And honestly, I don't know what it is or what it was going from uh, episode 40 in June and then to episode 50, which will be out in uh, November. 
but something about this last stretch has been really challenging. <laughs> and I do have an announcement to make uh, in the next episode. Oh, that sounds way more dramatic than it is. But I do have a small <laughs> announcement to make. Uh, so make sure you listen for that. But even more important than my announcement for episode 50 is the fact that the guest is going to be a wonderful woman who studied abroad in Jordan, who went to Nicaragua with the Peace Corps, and who is currently doing uh, advocacy and community health work in Costa Rica. So you will get to hear all about her journey in two weeks. But until then... Thank you so much for listening and talk to you next time.